It is Thursday, January 18th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a constitutional amendment that aims to hold private schools to the same standards as public schools. The polling shows this is completely a nonpartisan issue, which is the way education always has been until the past few years. It's becoming more and more hyper-partisan, sadly, at the legislature. But in the public, we have overwhelming support across all party identities. Plus, Sona presents three works, all written and first performed within just a few years of each other. We had the chance to throw in yet a third piece, and I thought to myself, okay, what was written right about then? Okay, how about American in Paris? And looking back on the financial outlook for Arkansas in 2023. This is a great economy. Despite the Fed's best efforts, this this economy continues to create jobs at unexpectedly high levels. All that after the news from NPR. Little Wing presents Old Crow Medicine Show coming to the City Auditorium in Eureka Springs with special guest Willie Watson, January 20th. Old Crow Medicine Show at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs. Tickets at tickets.thundertix.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, January 18th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Happy Winnie the Pooh Day as we remember the birthday of author A.A. Milne and the delightful characters from the Hundred Acre Wood. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF. Later on our show, classical American composers in the 1930s. We might expect some sonic continuity in this time period, but as the music director of the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas shares, that's not the case, as they showcase just that in their inaugural 2024 performance. That's in our second half hour. First up, A proposed constitutional amendment has been rejected that aims to change elements of the governor's major education law. The Education Rights Amendment of 2024 proposes that all schools that receive local or state funding will be required to meet, quote, identical state academic standards and identical state standards of accreditation. I spoke with Bill Kopsky over Zoom recently. Kopsky serves as the director of the Arkansas Public Policy Panel, and he says leading up to the proposed ballot measure, they conducted research on a group of Arkansans. The polling shows this is completely a nonpartisan issue, which is the way education always has been until the past few years. It's becoming more and more hyperpartisan, sadly, at the legislature. But in the public, we have overwhelming support across all party identities. This is not a partisan issue in any way, shape or form. What sort of experience do you have personally with the ballot initiative process? Oh, gosh. I mean, um, you know, I've worked at the panel for quite a few years and we've worked on a number of ballot measures over the years. And so um, we've worked on um, a whole range of issues uh, uh, around uh, several minimum wage uh, efforts. We've raised the minimum wage in Arkansas through ballot measures several times, ethics and campaign finance reform. Um, the, uh, we've opposed a few ballot measures over the years. Uh, most recently, last cycle, there was a, a measure that the legislature proposed that would have uh, raised the threshold to 60% of the vote, which would allow just a 40% minority to block passage of a ballot measure. We opposed that and defeated it uh, with 60% of the vote, which felt particularly gratifying. As someone who has done this before, you've kind of been through this process before. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into this in a little bit, but but just kind of on its surface, what has this process been like for you going through with this ballot measure and this specific attorney general compared to previous experiences? 
It depends. Uh, but like the, we have a really strong committee of lawyers and volunteers and educators that have been helping us build the campaign and build the measure. So that part's been really gratifying. We have a, a really amazing team. And so that part's been fantastic. You know, the attorney general's office has traditionally played this role, actually. So this is uh, not terribly new. In the past, the attorney general's office had a little bit more of, uh, what's the right word? They were more helpful in really trying to help citizen groups. I mean, I think the whole reason why they were put in the middle of the process to begin with was to help citizens prepare a good law. And and in the past, the attorney general's office staff would actually call people that were working on ballot measures, talk to them about what their real goals were and help them find the best language or the right way to accomplish their goals, whether they agreed with it or not. They were there just to basically make good public policy. Um, and this attorney general seems to be taking a little bit different approach towards that and a little bit more adversarial. But at the end of the day, as long as they're operating in good faith, uh, you know, it still could work out. Um, we expected to be rejected on the first time. We're already planning to submit uh, a new version in the coming days. And, you know, we'll see how the process goes. Can you lay out the main tenets of the Educational Rights Amendment? Sure. There's three core components. The first is putting a constitutional right to four of the most effective education reforms. And so they would be universal access for all three and four-year-olds to early childhood education, universal access to quality after school and summer programming, uh, universal access to quality special education, and then universal access to uh, support services for kids who are in poverty. Poverty is the uh, biggest negative impact on learning that we have. And there's uh, all kinds of uh, amazing data uh, that shows that programs that address poverty really help low-income children learn a lot better. So that's the first component of those four kind of, we call them the four most evidence-based reforms that any state or school district could do to improve student outcomes. And then the other two components are, one solidifies the definition of education adequacy in the Constitution, basically just taking the exact definition that the Supreme Arkansas Supreme Court used in the 2002 Lakeview ruling and putting that definition in the Constitution. It creates a floor on educational quality that the legislature would never be able to go beneath in. And then the third component would require any school that receives public funding to follow the same set of educational standards. So it, it seems to me that the the element of the amendment that has certainly gotten the most attention and seems to be the one that has been pushed back against the most by Attorney General Tim Griffin is around the state assessments ought to be the same for public and for private schools. The first proposal, the first thing that he rejected, uh, he said, quote, many parochial schools provide religious instruction as part of their academic curriculum, but if enacted, your proposal would prevent parochial schools from offering that instruction. What is your reaction when you hear that? That's absolutely incorrect. We would not be telling parochial schools they couldn't offer religious instruction. What we would be saying is that they wouldn't be entitled to state funding to offer parochial instruction. And so uh, their First Amendment right to free speech is, and freedom of religion is certainly still intact. Uh, they just wouldn't be entitled to use state tax dollars unless they're willing to meet state educational standards. We've seen elements of this in higher education. Is that is that not right when we think of how public schools and private schools can get state funding and federal funding that there are certain 
elements that they have to meet in order to qualify for those sorts of fundings? I mean, it's a law now. I mean, to get state or, or federal funding for almost any program, there are certain strings that come attached to it. And, and so what we're saying is that we'd like to create a level playing field between uh, traditional public schools, charter schools, and private schools that, that uh, take advantage of uh, school vouchers. Uh, so there's an equal playing field on quality standards, transparency, accountability, all those sorts of things. Um, right now, we really have an unequal playing field where public schools are held to a much higher standard than what charter schools or private schools are held to. Have you heard from whether it's parents who, whose students attend private schools or from private school administrators that, that they would be opposed to this sort of uh, amendment and this sort of you know, equal assessment? We haven't actually um, heard from from anyone. I mean, the, the, we've only had the campaign out for a little over a month now, and, and there's a long ways to go uh, before the election in November. But, you know, the, our polling shows uh, nearly 80% of our Kansans support the idea that any school receiving public funding should have to meet the same standards. And so I think it kind of makes sense that public money comes along with it, public accountability, public transparency, and again, an equal playing field. Uh, I think it's something we could all support. You spoke out in opposition to the Learns Act when it was being considered in the regular session of 2023. Do you feel that this amendment would help to alleviate some of the concerns that you had and still have about the law? It would in a couple of important ways. The first is that one of the frustrating things about uh, voucher schemes like Learns has in it um, and charter schools is that there's not very much evidence that they actually improve education. Actually, there's evidence that they they undermine educational quality, particularly for um, uh, middle and low income kids. But there is unbelievable and overwhelming evidence and consensus among education researchers of the power of reforms like pre-K, after school and summer, uh, wraparound services for kids in poverty, quality, high quality special ed, um, improving teacher quality. But those programs have not been funded by the Arkansas legislature as they've been distracted by, frankly, um, ineffective strategies of school privatization. And so um, we've been frustrated that, you know, some examples, early childhood education in Arkansas hasn't had a funding increase in 15 years. The uh, after school and summer program, Arkansas created the framework for an after school and summer program in the legislature did in 2009. They've never funded a single dime of it. And so uh, Arkansas puts no state dollars in after school and summer programs. The parents of special education and special needs kids know that because they know that a lot of their children are not being served well. The schools know it because they're trying, and many of them, the, the schools and the educators are trying their best, but they're just not getting the resources that they need. The state in 2015, had a task force on special education, and it recommended hundreds of millions of dollars of investment for special education, including a $100 million need for just catastrophic care for our highest needs students. The legislature has not invested any new money since that report came out in 2015 into special education. So we have this gaping need in special education that our amendment would address. And so those things are, are the parts of the amendment that we feel the best about because it is basically putting, would be putting state dollars in those programs that we know are proven to be the most effective at helping students learn. When you talk about the underfunding of summer programming, pre-K, special education, and you see the highlights two consecutive years of a billion plus dollar surplus 
Um, what does that make you think about? You know, it's just really misplaced priorities. I mean, Arkansas over the past decade has spent, I think it's around, or has passed nearly $1.5 billion in tax cuts, almost exclusively going to the highest income earners. And that's not how we improve the economy or the quality of life for all our Kansans. Uh, you know, education is one of those things that's the closest to a silver bullet we have for improving quality of life. And uh, we'd be much better off making those investments in early childhood education. You know, investments in pre-K pay themselves back eight or nine to one. Investments in after school and summer programs, the same. Investments in special education even save money because the money we spend early on special education means that's money we don't have to spend later on remediation or on healthcare or on job support for, for people with special needs. It makes them more productive, effective citizens in the state, which is good uh, for everybody, but it also makes them stronger, healthier people, which is also good for, so it's sort of a win-win uh, to invest in those things. So when we see the state squandering surpluses on tax cuts that only benefit a small slice of the, of the most privileged in our, in our state, it doesn't, it doesn't support the values that we should have in the state of making sure everybody has a quality education. Bill Kopsky is the director of the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. You can find more details about For Our Kids, the ballot question committee behind this amendment, and the polling they conducted at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Coming up on our show, going into the great unknown. I was launched into this sort of thought process of, okay, we've got these two pieces pretty much written at the same time, purposefully chosen to do that. Uh, because they were uh, so contrasting stylistically, but within the same time period. We had the chance to throw in yet a third piece, and I thought to myself, okay, what was written right about then? Okay, how about American in Paris? The Symphony of Northwest Arkansas kicks off its 2024 season this weekend, and music director Paul Haas shares some insights into the musical selections around this performance. That's in about 10 minutes on today's show. Flu and respiratory illnesses are circulating right now in the natural state. Ozarks at Large's Janet Carruth has details on what health experts say about the current flu season. Winter is fully upon us, and odds are you or someone you know has recently been reaching for the tissues or throat lozenges. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is now warning of a triple-demic. That's flu, COVID, and respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. And while flu cases are on the rise in Arkansas, with 18 deaths reported from the flu since October, according to numbers from the State Department of Health, those numbers are significantly down from the same period last year at 116 people. Still, the state is experiencing a high level of flu illness, 10 out of 13, on the CDC's influenza-like illness scale, which reflects the state's hospitalizations, deaths, and outbreaks. Dr. Rick Barr is Chief Clinical and Academic Officer for Arkansas Children's Hospital, and he says this cold and flu season has been relatively typical. We had an RSV spike back in early December, mid-December. We're actually seeing that start to tail off some, but RSV was front and center three, four weeks ago. Now we're starting to see more flu, and it's pretty equally split between <clears throat> flu A and flu B, but we're seeing approximately 
250 cases a week of uh, flu at, at, at our combined hospitals. And then COVID is always there. It, it is a, it, we do consider it a wintertime virus now. It's still there present, but less than you know, RSV and flu. He says young children, those with compromised immune systems, and older adults are at higher risk for these respiratory viruses. And one reason we're seeing an uptick in these cases now is because more people are going back to work or school after the holidays. Brianne Carter works for the Pat Walker Health Center on the University of Arkansas campus. Of course, there's always a concern at the start of every semester when our community returns to campus at the same time. She says data from last semester showed an uptick in COVID and flu cases at the end of the year, but says the numbers were consistent with local community spread. Both Barr and Carter say the health measures people learned during the COVID-19 pandemic, like masking, hand washing, and social distancing, are all important measures to keep safe. But they stress getting vaccinated is the most important measure to reduce serious illness. Of course, we still we remain to offer, you know, vaccines and testing for both flu and COVID. You know, the flu vaccine that we offer is quadrivalent flu vaccine injection. Um, and so that's designed to protect against four different flu viruses. For the, the updated COVID vaccine that we currently offer, it's the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Late last fall, the CDC rolled out a new RSV vaccine, but Barr says manufacturing problems have led to a nationwide shortage. We, we still have a shortage of the RSV vaccine for infants. Hopefully we'll make a significant dent in next year's RSV season. We anticipate that people are, are going to want to receive their kids to receive the RSV vaccine because it is so effective at preventing hospitalizations. And it's recommended to give it at the time of birth, you know, when a newborn infant is still in the hospital uh, is when we think that, that it'll be best delivered. And that's a good time to give vaccines if you can. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. On the program today, we have Randy Zook, the chief executive of the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce who will discuss the economy and business conditions across Arkansas. Plus, a rundown of what you will find in the latest issue of the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, which is out this week. That and more is coming your way after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. More at ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas, and it shows in your banking experience. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. That's because First Security is 100% focused on serving customers all across the state and nowhere else. It's local banking with local commitment. First Security. Bank better. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. 
Randy Zook is the longtime CEO of the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce. In a recent interview with Roby Brock, Zook discussed his view on business conditions and tax policy as we get rolling here in 2024. Take a listen. Let's begin with just kind of a big general question. Is this economy that we're in right now, is it booming or is it busting? Because right now I feel like my political affiliation is going to determine which perspective I have. It very, it very likely does, literally, the political outlook. Your, your political perspective typically determines whether you think we're in a great economy or the end of the world is right around the corner. Right. Uh, frankly, the, this is, I'll quote a guy off of CNBC this morning, this is a great economy. Despite the Fed's best efforts, this, this economy continues to create jobs at unexpectedly high levels. People who are looking for jobs are having a little bit more, uh, having to put a little more effort into it and it's taken a little longer, but ne nevertheless, there's still about one and a half jobs for everybody who's in the market for a job nationally. And that's true for Arkansas in most places. There are exceptions. Yeah. There are places that are really hurting for one reason or another, but those are very localized. Yeah. Generally speaking, this economy in Arkansas is very healthy. Stock market's booming. Stock GDP market has been pretty big, healthy and robust this past year. Absolutely. You've got the um, unemployment at a very low rate, like you said. There's a lot of positives happening. Inflation's coming down. It is still, I think, a problem for a lot of people. Yep. That is pretty difficult for one government, even a national government, to control because there's worldwide influences. Well, it so takes a long around. time for the Fed's best efforts. It, it, nothing, this thing is too big to turn on a dime, so there, there's always a lag between policy changes and, and how the economy responds. One of those big battleships that you it don't turn quickly. It is a big so. battleship. Um, end of the year for Arkansas, some really nice economic development announcements. Dasso Falcon out in um, at yep. the at Little Rock Airport with a big expansion. We saw new jobs yep. in Camden, lots of other areas of the state too. Every economic developer that I talked to, and I've talked to probably about a half dozen in the last month, mm -hmm. has told me that it is as robust as they've ever seen it. What's your sense? Exactly right. They're 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 spot on. Uh, just take an imaginary road trip around the state and. Starting in the Northeast, you've got the world's greatest, most modern steel mill under construction, soon to go into production. Three or 4,000 people working up there to build the thing, plus looking for about seven or 800 to staff it once it's open. So all these things, the, the Walmart headquarters complex looks like a Looks like we're rebuilding, you know, the Manhattan Project or something. It's just unbelievable how much activity there. And Fort Smith is about to just explode. Yeah. Uh, but it just all across the state, positive economic signs. We had a great harvest, uh, unusually early uh, in the eastern part of the state. Yeah. So you know, things are things are. I don't want to say they're rosy, but they're they're. Very healthy. We've, yep. got, a, we've no. got a really good situation. It's definitely been good. There's no doubt about that. All right. One of the things that I think you will never stop wanting for the rest of your life is tax cuts in Arkansas. What do you see on the tax cut horizon uh, in 2024? In 2024, I think we'll see another modest reduction. I think there's, there's reason to, to be a little bit careful now. It's not just pedal to the metal, but but we're going to have to be careful that the state is still creating a surplus at the first half of this fiscal year, yeah. a couple hundred million. Right. 
I would guess we'll end up somewhere between 300 and 320 or 30 or 40, somewhere With in there. With the tax cut or the surplus? No, but the surplus. And then, and then they'll, there's indications that they'll want to do some things. I think it might be pretty detailed kind of stuff, the kind of stuff we like, um, you know, some of the... Well, like what? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, the, the net operating loss carry forward period. We've got room to, ex to extend that you. beyond where we are. We made one change, we need to make another, but that's, that's pretty CPA kind of stuff, but right. it's important. What about, not, what about not doing as deep of a tax cut in order to make investments in some things like education, workforce training. Um. As a matter of fact, yep. we just have concluded a poll, a statewide poll, and we sense that that's the public's view right now, is let's let's be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, with the dishwater, so. Um, Would you care to share more about this poll that I'm just now finding out about? Well, in terms as a matter of, of fact, oil. I'm about to take <laughs> off on a, a tour of the state. Yes discussing this uh, poll is pretty Glean with pretty me broad. a little bit more of what might be in there. So well, it, your it, big it, takeaway. Yeah, it, the big takeaway is that, first of all, it is your ideology that drives your view of the future of the economy, but there, there's some reason for concern about people's optimism longer term. Are people willing, you know, we've got people moving into Arkansas. That's the good news. Unlike Mississippi, our neighbor, which in this booming economy is treading water at best or losing ground in right. terms of population. People vote with their feet. People vote with a moving van on, on what they think of an area or a location. We've got people moving here from all over the country, uh, not just Northwest Arkansas, all across the state. Some parts aren't enjoying that growth, but those are localized reasons. That is Randy Zook, head of the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce. In that interview with Roby Brock, he also discussed the lithium boom that is taking shape in South Arkansas and what that potential impact might be. You can watch that entire conversation over on our sister website at talkbusiness.net. In other news this week, a group called Arkansans for Patient Access has submitted a proposed ballot initiative to make changes to the state's medical marijuana amendment. The constitutional amendment legalizing medical marijuana for 17 qualifying conditions was approved by Arkansas voters 53% to 47% in November 2016. Brett Williams, interim dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas since this past August, has been appointed to the position full-time. Williams has worked in various roles within the Walton College since coming to Fayetteville in 2011. As interim dean, he replaced Matt Waller. And the latest Northwest Arkansas Business Journal is out this week. In the new issue, we've got details about two startup accelerator programs kicking off this month. And those are being influenced by Bentonville Organization's Cartwheel Startup Studio and Heartland Forward. Also in the magazine, J.B. Hunt plans to start construction this year on a solar array expected to offset more than 80% of electricity demand for its corporate headquarters in Lowell. All that and much more are in the new issue, and you can read the digital version for free at nwabusinessjournal.com. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, 
Thanks for listening. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and Janelle Marina Mendez is a writer and activist working toward increasing our understanding about trafficking and enslavement around the country and around the world. When you're looking at who you're doing business with and where you're investing your money, you want to look for socially conscious leaders that are ensuring that there's not slavery in their supply chains. And looking at public reports, like you can see those reports and decide whether to divest or not on the consumer side. A conversation about her new book, Pathway Toward Peace, on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Pea Ridge. And you can ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent edition of our program. In the background is New Orleans-based Astral Project, a band that will be performing in Northwest Arkansas. And I'm Robert Ginsberg, your host for Shades of Jazz. On this edition of the show, I will feature not only Astral Project, but the Brian Blade Fellowship Band, who will also be in concert soon, plus Adam Brenner, Peter Erskine, and much more. Tune in to Shades of Jazz, right here on KUAF. Shades of Jazz, tomorrow night from 10 until midnight on 91.3 KUAF, then Saturday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3, available for free at KUAF.com on your HD radio and by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF 3. Work created by neurodiverse artists will be showcased later this month through a partnership between Ozark Beer Company and the nonprofit Perspectability, a group formed by parents of neurodiverse children. The neurodiverse artists and creators are sharing their works and inspirations in the gallery opening that is sponsored by Ozark Beer Company. Work will be on display through February with an ongoing silent auction. All proceeds from the silent auction go directly to these neurodivergent artists. Portion of Ozark Beer's Drink Beer Do Good opening night proceeds benefit Perspectability's mission for inclusion. That opening reception Tuesday, January 30th at Ozark Beer on North Arkansas in downtown Rogers. The Fort Smith Regional Art Museum is hosting a discussion about a current exhibition tomorrow night and then opening two new exhibitions next week. Tomorrow night, Vimari de Poister will talk about her current exhibition, Beyond Labels. Her work examines how labels we use for ourselves and others can have the power to divide or connect us. Rather than focusing on the boundaries these labels can create, the artist's goal is to inspire a sense of community. She'll be at the Fort Smith Ram tomorrow night from 5 until 6. That talk is free, donations accepted. And next week, the Ram will open an exhibition dedicated to Hispanic empowerment through art and another featuring work of faces and figures from the permanent collection. Both of the new exhibitions will have an opening reception Friday, January 26th from 5 until 7 that night. The John Brown University women's basketball team is somewhere they haven't been in six years. The NAIA Top 25 poll. The team ranked 21st in the latest poll. and They're 12-3 and overall and a perfect 9-0 and so far in the Sooner Athletic Conference. Both JBU basketball teams are playing at Texas Wesleyan tonight in Fort Worth. Both teams back in Siloam Springs Saturday afternoon for games against Oklahoma Science and Arts. Plenty of chances to see sports on the University of Arkansas campus this weekend. The men's tennis team hosts Illinois State tomorrow afternoon and Middle Tennessee Sunday afternoon. The women's tennis team hosts Bradley on Saturday. Also Saturday, Razorback Swimming and Diving competes on campus against Vanderbilt. And the men's basketball team will play South Carolina Saturday at noon in Bud Walton Arena.
This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studios, Paul Haas with a symphony of Northwest Arkansas. Welcome back. Thank you, Kyle. Great to be here with you. Next concert, The Great Unknown, Saturday night at 7.30. It's going to be an amazing one. That's the one. Okay. Let me ask you something about this, because it includes Samuel Barber, Symphony Number no. 1, which was written in 1936, Gershwin's American Paris, first performed in 28, William Dawson, Negro Folk Symphony, which I think was first performed in 1934. Correct. All correct. You're doing very well so okay. far. All right. So this is an eight-year period. I think we have a tendency to think of eight-year periods as monolithic, like, oh, that was when music sounded like this. These three pieces do not sound like each other. No, they do not. <laughs> I think it's wildly interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, we, we because of the the programmatic change uh, we had to make, uh, we were launched. I was launched into this sort of thought process of okay, we've got these two pieces pretty much written at the same time, purposefully chosen to do that uh, because they were uh, so contrasting stylistically, but within the same time period. Uh, but then we had the chance to throw in yet a third piece, and I thought to myself, okay, what was written right about then? Okay, how about American in Paris? And it is it's this sort of kaleidoscope of different uh, musical colors. three written within this eight-year period, not only are they different from each other, and I might be overextending myself here, but I think they were all somewhat different from what contemporary ears from 1928 to 1936 were expecting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there was no Gershwin before Gershwin, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, in that sense, he broke the mold with everything he ever wrote. Um, but uh, now, I mean, we'll, we'll take uh, the sort of next obvious uh, person to talk about. So we've got Samuel Barber, who, of course, everybody knows Adagio for strings from his first string quartet, which he wrote in Rome, I don't know, a couple of years before that, basically. And, and this is not like that at all. I mean, this is a gargantuan uh architectural masterpiece basically this is this is uh this is where you you can you can sense he he's he's musically related to brahms here he's got uh he he writes with such such structural mastery
and it's like he's he's creating this huge edifice for us to inhabit for a few minutes, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the Dawson, of course. Uh, I mean, sure. Did he have his? Uh, he he was, certainly was influenced by Dvorak, influenced by his 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 home, his musical upbringing. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot that he brought in, but honestly, that that's uh, other than all of his his choral work in terms of symphonic music. This is all we know mm-hmm. of him. This is this this is his piece, uh, and so it's really. Uh, yeah, I mean, one from the other, completely different pieces. Uh, and then in the case of Barber and the case of Gershwin, of course, breaking the mold from what anyone ever would have thought uh, could be possible at that point. And with Dawson, I mean, nobody even heard it. Huh. It was just sort of wiped off wiped off the map, except for that performance in 36. And then I guess, uh, and then he did a, um, uh, a reorchestration of it after he visited Africa. Uh, I think in the 50s it was. And so we got another performance then. But other than that, completely forgotten. Wow. Until recently. musicians will be on stage with you i mean obviously sona but well yeah i mean it's uh it's it's all it's all sona um we have we have no soloist for this program uh we have it's the orchestra is the soloist right and you think of a piece like the gershwin uh i guess you could say the percussion section is 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 uh the 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 majorly featured section but eh, i mean it's like a concerto for orchestra it really is uh, Barber features everything. I mean, the guy knew how to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I mean, it's massive, breathtaking work. Uh, the the barber and and I had no idea. I, I, it it kills me that you know, three years ago I had no idea that this piece, the 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 Dawson Symphony, that it existed, and it's. It's incredible work, Kyle. I mean, it's uh, you know, it 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 has, like I said before, it has uh, you know, he has his influences, and he was greatly influenced by Dvorak, of course, who basically was weirdly as a Czech guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> as the father of American music, uh, mostly because he saw the potential there for an American school of music based on. Black musics based on jazz. He had a more open on, mind. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he was more American than the American than yeah. the Americans. Uh, anyway, but 
the fact remains, this symphony is, I mean, we're talking about structure and being able to build an edifice with Barber. Dawson does the same thing. It is, it is not expected the way he writes this piece. You, you start to hear it and you think, oh, yeah, I can put that in that box. But it, it hops right out of that box almost immediately. And, yeah, I mean, it, it takes you on, on wild goose chases. Uh, it's um, just the way he deals with themes and stacks them all on top of each other. And, you know, he'll, 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 he'll quote something in places where you'd least expect it. It's just, it's, it's utterly and mind-bendingly original, this piece. And it's, it's tragic that we're just getting to know it now. The Great Unknown concert is Saturday night at 7.30 at Walton Art Center in Fayetteville. You'll have just enough time maybe to catch your breath before defying expectations on February 17th. It's true. They keep me working hard here, but I love every minute of it. You'll be back to talk about Give us a preview of that. Excellent. I'll, I'll be happy to, Kyle. Paul Haas, thank you so much. Thank you. Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with Mi Sueño, Afro-Flamenco, by Nigerian-American composer Sean Opekolo, performed by pianist Claire Longendijk. Mi Sueño Afro-Flamenco was composed between 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic. Opekolo says about this piece, Quote, the title means my dream, Afro-Flamenco, which references my pre-pandemic nostalgia and post-pandemic dreams. It represents my longing to revisit Africa and relive my Nigerian musical heritage, to travel to Spain and once again savor the boundless artistry of flamenco performers and to experience new places, cultures and music. This piece is a musical dreamscape that infuses my musical language with African and African-American-inspired rhythms and sonorities and flamenco musical styles, end quote.
That was an excerpt from Mi Sueño Afro-Flamenco by Nigerian-American composer Sean Opkenholo, performed by pianist Claire Longendike. Cuban pianist, band leader, composer and arranger Bebo Valdez and Spanish flamenco singer Diego El Cigala also bridged the gap between flamenco and this time Cuban rhythms in their 2003 album Lágrimas Negras. Both genres share a deep emphasis on improvisation, rhythmic complexity, and emotional expression, making them a natural fit for each other, especially in the artistry of these two world-renowned musicians. Let us listen to the title track, Lágrimas Negras. Y aunque tú has muerto mi ilusión En vez de maldecirte con justo encono Y en mis sueños te como Y en mis sueños te como de bendiciones Sufro la inmensa pena de tu extravío de tu partida y lloro sin que tú sepas que el llanto mío tiene lágrimas negras tiene lágrimas negras como mi vida
Cuban pianist, band leader, composer and arranger Bebo Valdez and Spanish flamenco singer Diego El Cigala interpreting Lágrimas Negras from the 2003 album with the same name. Dreams and nostalgia form a delicate dance, one reaching into the future, the other bound to the past, both influencing the present with their insights into what was and what could be. Today, in Sound Perimeter, we listen to two examples of the interconnectedness of global music, expressions, and the rich tapestry of emotions, rhythms, and harmonies that celebrate the diversity of cultural influences in the world of music. This is Leo Uribe, Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a show written and hosted by me and produced by Sofia Nurani, KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. This segment is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. Have a wonderful day. Pañuelo de blanco y oro que yo te daba, que yo te daba Agua del limonero, agua del limonero Si te acaricio la cara, tienes que darme un beso Tú me quieres dejar, yo no quiero sufrir Contigo me voy tan y aunque me cueste morir Contigo me voy tan Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors to our show today include Daniel Carruth, Paul Gatling, Roby Brock, and Leah Uribe. Additional production help today from Sophia Narani and Stephanie Brock. This show that you're listening to right now produced today by Matthew inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Kyle, on Monday's show, uh, I had to produce a little bit of it at home. Yes. And I shared online that my go-to production studio at home is an upstairs bedroom closet. Mm -hmm. In years past, that closet was a closet to a guest room. When I was in grad school, I did some production work up there. That was my go-to spot. Now it is the closet of my son. Mm -hmm. um, and it works out well because he has a lot of clothes. So it's still nice and cozy and soundproofed in there. But uh, I feel that I neglected my son by not mentioning that part of Monday's show was produced inside the James Moore closet. I uh, was in touch with his agents, and we <laughs> the lack of credit was, was disturbing, I think. Well, I, I, I do want to take a moment today and acknowledge <laughs> that... Part of Monday's show was produced inside that closet. Thank you to my son. We Yes. We have another show produced not at all in the closet tomorrow. <laughs> I'll be with you Sunday morning at 9. Then start a whole new week, hopefully with okay weather. Yeah. Where schedules don't get nutty. 
Mm-hmm. And we'll do that uh, next Monday. You can always find out more about us at OzarksAtLarge.com. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. KUAF is supported by Penguinette's Barbecue, open for curbside pickup seven days a week at Mission and Crossover in Fayetteville, and open seven days a week with dine-in, patio, and curbside pickup at the historic B&B location. PenguinEds.com for menus. Walton Arts Center's 10x10 Arts Series presents the Galvin Cello Quartet, January 30th at 7 p.m. With members from China, Brazil, South Korea, and the U.S., this diverse ensemble presents a program featuring works by Stravinsky, Vivaldi, Rossini, Gershwin, and others, illustrating the connections that form when cultures are integrated through musical harmony. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org.